Dear Miss Garbo, I hope you noticed me in the newsreel of the recent Detroit riot in which my head was broken. I never worked for Ford, but a friend of mine told me about the strike, and as I had nothing to do that day, I went over with him to the scene of the riot, and we were standing around in small groups chewing the rag about this and that, and there was a lot of radical talk, but I didn't pay any attention to it. Lightning recap in Dear Greta Garbo by William Zoroyan, a man sends a letter to Greta Garbo in a bid for stardom. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. This is Short Story Short Podcast. I am Christopher J. Garcia, here today with... Christy L., and the L is for llamas, Baxter. And it's pronounced Yama! Yama! <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so great to be here. Fall has felled. And, you know, the other day I was thinking as I was laying on the couch, you know what I could go for right now? A story from the 1930s that feels like it could be written yesterday. Hmm. What, what short story that felt like it was written today, but was written in the 1930s, should I have read? That story that is 90 years old, but also is not 90 years old, is Dear Greta Garbo by William Soroyan. Now, of course, professionally, this is a story that I am contractually obligated to think is the greatest story ever written. Um, but I think one of the big things about it, and one of the reasons why I've gravitated towards it, is exactly how prescient it is. And it's in a way that I never would have thought of if I thought about the 1930s, is that this is a dude writing a letter to Greta Garbo saying, hey, I was a big deal in this newsreel footage from a riot. You should come and make me a movie star. Yeah. You could rewrite this as an Instagram post. <laughs> it would be perfect. Some things change and some things stay the same. And people's insistence on getting stardom and fame without actually putting any effort into it and actually expecting somebody else to do the heavy lifting, that is one thing that will always stay the same. I am in that photo and I do not like it. Uh, <laughs> no, you're not. You would never write something like that on Instagram. You'd be much more subtle. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. And one of the beautiful things about celebrity culture that this is realizing is that people have no sort of separation or at least the wrongest people, I guess, have no separation between the types of celebrity that there are. People think, you know, oh, if I'm out there, you know, being seen on the newsreel looking back, I'm at the same level because I'm in the same presentation space as, you know, Greta Garbo or William Holden or any of the other 1930s stars. I think there are three or four. Uh, <laughs> and it's this idea that when we democratize the ability to present oneself that the playing field becomes flat 
And I think actually podcast is the perfect example of why that whole theory is garbage. I want to hear more about that. Expand on that. Pretty please. Well, I mean, it's, it's so simple. Like we think that, so what this is presenting is we're both on in a movie and mine just happens to be a nonfiction movie of me just happening to be somewhere that cameras were. And on the other side is I am a part of multi-million dollar, multi-million dollar presentations where I have this entire back company supporting me and bringing me up to present me to the world. Whereas today what you see is everyone has their Instagram presence, their Twitter presence, whatever. And the idea that anyone's work is equal to one another's, which they are, it's the same sort of thing, except there's still this difference between just some random Joe who is out there tweeting and the entire machinations that go on behind uh, a celebrity. For example, neither you nor I are Joe Rogan, yet we do the same thing. Um, Have you seen me and Joe Rogan in a room together ever? Hmm? Were you on an episode of news radio that I missed? (laughs) Oh, that's right. That happened. I forgot all about that. So uh, I guess I can't actually be Joe Rogan. And I'm really actually pretty okay with that. So yeah, it is, it's still, it's still reflected in everything today. And even if you look at it, social media stuff, you know, like, yeah, we can all put our stuff on Instagram, but it's still not, you know, the great equalizer because you know, some people will buy followers or some people will just naturally have more followers. Some people are just naturally more interesting than I am and that's okay. And so like, it's, it's also, it's still the, those levels still exist in pretty much every outward facing aspect of our society, but it was still, I could see for sure one of somebody with, with 20 followers on Twitter, you know, trying to hit up like Jennifer Aniston or something for, uh, you know, a, a favor. And she probably gets 20 of these a day. <laughs> I think your 20 might be off by a factor of 10. But... <laughs> I, I might very well be. I was trying to be kind to my fellow humans, but I really should learn my lesson and stop. <laughs> they're not humans. They're celebrities. Big difference. <laughs> Oh, I met the think, people writing to her. I was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you, that this entire metaphor misses the actual humans <laughs> yeah. above and below. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I love about how he presents this story, one, it's very short. It feels like an actual letter. And what's interesting about that is there is very little adornment. There's just a little bit, of course, because you can't really write a story without adornment, even back then, even if you're known as a minimalist. But where you get the little the little touches that I love is, you know, I looked back to make sure anyone could could notice me with my smile. Um, I was obviously the one who was most uh, present, even including the police, which I love that little note because it's actually speaking to the Hayes Code that you had to present the police as the force of good in a presentation like this. Oh, I didn't make that connection, but that makes a lot of sense. That's very true to life in that aspect. Yeah, now knowing what I know about William Soroyan, I'm fairly certain that when he wrote this, he was literally writing a letter he would write to Greta Garbo. And I believe he did correspond with Greta Garbo at times. 
Hmm. Um, yeah, which is, I think, cool. There are so many letters he wrote to so many people that I really want to read. Like, I think he had a couple to Pablo Picasso, uh, which would be awesome. People like that George Bernard Shaw guy, uh, and even cooler, Ed Sullivan. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Quite the trove. But, yeah. And of course, he has a book signed by FDR's cabinet. Oh, and Carmen Miranda. So. <laughs> Wait, it, she signed the book that the, the cabinet all signed or he has two separate books, one with the cabinet and one with Carmen Miranda. Because I really love the idea that the, the, the FDR's cabinet signed a book for him. And then they were like, you know what? This is missing. Carmen Miranda's signature. Somebody go dig her up. <laughs> that is actually exactly what it is. It's cabinet at FDR and Eleanor. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh. Yes. Uh, it's, I'll post it to our, do we have a Twitter? Yeah, we have a Twitter. <laughs> yeah, we have a Twitter. Yeah. You, you, you run it. So um, yeah. <laughs> You're acting like I remember things. <laughs> True. I had to re- remind you that we were recording today. Uh. Okay. To be fair. <laughs> that's all. Um, <laughs> I thought so. Yeah, uh, there's there's a whole lot of great stuff in of Soroyan here at uh, Forever Soroyan, the archive that I work at. And what's incredible is that Soroyan was, more than anything, a celebrity writer. And it's really, he was in a position that very few writers now have. I mean, you have Neil Gaiman to a degree, John Scalzi, uh, probably others that I can't think of who are celebrities, not just for writing, but beyond their writing. They're the ones who you write to ask to be, to write the intro to your book. They're Mm. the ones who show up on talk shows and that sort of thing. This is who William Soroyan was. And I think in a way this reflects that because I think he's presenting that here is a guy whose fame is outside of what is traditionally the fame building arenas who is actually now managing to get an aspect of fame and how do I capitalize on that? Mm -hmm. It's fascinating getting this little insight into it that that we get just by you having your particular job. You should probably specify what your job is for people so they know your creds are legit. I just break into libraries and hang out. I mean, it's a living. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm actually, an, I'm an archivist here at Forever Soroyan in San Jose, California, the largest privately held collection of William Soroyan memorabilia material. The rest of it's all at Stanford. But uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing that what's great about William Soroyan's work in general, and this story in particular, is that it is a very layered presentation. And one of the reasons I think why it is so today as it was back then is that there are so many layers like an onion or pie that let you interact with in a different way that are never going to change. People are always going to want to be famous. Yeah, you're right. I think they are always going to want to be famous. And I think part of that is that they want to attach themselves, of course, to something bigger than themselves. And I think when people have a little bit of fame, it's like the little bit of poison. You need the rest of the poison. Oh Uh, my gosh. I can relate to that a little too. I am in this photo and I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's 
that's sort of the universal thing that he's tapping into. And this maybe, you know, this might have started in the 20th century. And I kind of think it's been around as long as there's been any sort of mass media to attach to. Here, it is beautifully presented in this very concise, very precise, I think his, his writing here, I think is, there are nothing wasted here at all. There's almost no ornamentation to it as is Soroyan's lot. But I think that all of that put together makes this into a really powerful story that's like 300 words. Yeah, something like that. It's not very many. I found it really struck me how incredibly precise with the language and, and punctuation in particular that was chosen here. If we look at that first paragraph, it is just two sentences, but it is a total of 85 words. I, there's one comma and one period in all of that. I think that's done very intentionally because it's not necessarily grammatically correct. And I'm sure that Soria knew how to <laughs> use a comma appropriately. It's done in almost this, to evoke almost, but not entirely this sort of stream of consciousness that the, the writer is, is having as he's writing this letter to Greta Garbo. Yeah, I think that Sorian ain't James Joyce, but I think <laughs> what he has done in his writing is he does strip out a lot of commas. He, does, he doesn't use a lot of semicolons or colons, and he 100% incredibly rarely uses any sort of at he he she said or any of that sort of thing which is part of why he gets this reputation as sort of a minimalist but in that the, that paragraph in particular it is incredibly smartly written because the the reason why we have punctuation is so that we can follow the thread and his thread is so solid he doesn't need that and that's that's a writer for you yeah, absolutely. And it's, mm, I'm still doing it. Not all the time, but I'm still doing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, every sentence. Yeah. That's the Christy way. So I feel like it's it, in any first person narrative, voice is going to be hugely important and nailing that voice and really understanding how the person who is actually you know supposed to be telling the story how they would think and how they would write and all of that very very important because it is supposed to be coming from them and you can see that done quite deliberately but still smoothly here in certain choices for instance we all know if you're writing something like a cover letter Maybe not so much starting every sentence with I, as we've been educated to do, because then it seems like it's all about you and you want the cover letter to actually be about what you have to offer the company. Well, this is just I, 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 all the way through practically. <laughs> so, and I think that's done intentionally because that is exactly what this letter is. It's all about Felix Otria. You're right. And I think... That is also why it took me so long to get a job. God damn it. <laughs> you, should have, 
gotten in touch with me, I'm a little bit of a pro at this by now, just from teaching it. Man. Oh, well, it all worked out because now I get to talk about these stories. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. You're, you're talking about the story on the podcast that you had before you got the job. It's all connected. It's all working out. <laughs> wheels within wheels, man. Wheels within wheels. <laughs> wheels within wheels. Hey, Christy. Yes. What are we going to read next week? We are going to read Harvey's Dream by Stephen King. As October looms large. Yes. Fantastic. Well, in that case, this has been Short Story. Short Podcast.